Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day podcast, a selection of all our best bits from the week that was. And this week we've talked about local charities, Manx culture, and asked, should school children be weighed yearly as part of the war on obesity? We've also asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be fashion designer, singer and ballerina. When I grow up, I want to be a policeman. When I grow up, I would like to be a rock climber. When I grow up, I want to be a businessman. When I grow up, I want to be a chemical engineer. At a time when it's hard to summon the freedom to dream, children and young adults are setting an example. Dreams are expensive, but perhaps at an even greater cost not necessarily measured in monetary terms, could be the reverse, not pursuing dreams. Catherine Reed and Sarah Wignall are both 17-year-old young sportswomen aspiring to achieve their dreams of becoming a professional athlete and footballer. When people ask you what you want to be when you grow up and you tell them an athlete, what's their reaction? They're normally taken aback because obviously it's a very risky career and they kind of say, oh no, realistically though, what do you want to do? And I have to just respond with the same answer and be like, that is what I want to do. When did you decide you want to be an athlete? Probably back in 2014 when I came second at the English Schools Championships in the 300 metres. I got selected for England after that and that was a moment when I realised it could actually become a reality. Presumably you were involved in athletics before then but you never thought of it as something you could do for a career yeah at first it was just a recreational thing like just for enjoyment and then things started to develop and got more serious at 17 you've got to make some decisions about what path you're going to go down how have you found trying to become an athlete I've just been juggling my training with my schoolwork. I try and focus on training as much as I can. It's all just about how much I can train, how often, and obviously get into competitions and stuff like that. How important is the schoolwork alongside the athletics? Obviously really important because I need to be able to get to a good university that's going to be good for my training and my competition. And without the grades, I won't be able to go to a university that's going to further me in my athletics. Do you feel like the education system supports you to achieve this ambitious dream? Although they provide support in a sense where they encourage me, I wouldn't say they have a full understanding of what it takes to become an athlete. So they don't always understand what I need to do when I need to be away. But with emotional support, They're always backing me up, so it's great to have. Do you think the education system sees becoming an athlete a realistic career? I would say not. I would think the education system looks at jobs where you've got a reliable source of income, whereas with athletics, it's all very touch and go. I need to perform well, then I get money. And obviously, that's a very risky business. So I don't think they do see it as a proper job just based on that fact I'm not getting proper financial support. Not many people choose to become an athlete. How do you overcome that lack of like-minded people going for the same goal? You just need to be the strongest in what you do. You can't hold yourself back. You need to focus on you and yourself only because at the end of the day you're the one that's got to make money for yourself so you can't. You just need to do what's best for you to get that money and get that that support into your pocket. And when I grow up 
I will be smart enough to answer all the questions that you need to know the answers to before you're grown up. I want to be playing professional football in America. When did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? I probably decided about two years ago when I went for these trials to see if you would be capable of getting a scholarship in America and they said that I would be capable. So I've just gone down that process and I've always wanted to since then. Can you remember the exact moment when the light bulb just shone you thought, yeah? Yeah, I think it was when it clicked that it was possible that I could make it. And just from then, I've just had that one goal and I haven't really thought about anything else since. So presumably before then, you were you were playing football before you realised that, you know, you could actually do it as a career. Yeah, I started when I was about four, just as a hobby, because my brothers were... They played, my mum and dad both coached, and since then I've just always grown up with it. But I always thought that I'd probably stop after school. But um, I think I just, because I'm so in love with the sport, I couldn't think of a life without it. How on earth do you become a professional footballer, and particularly a professional women's footballer? It's very difficult to become a professional in the UK, purely because of the money. But in the USA, they have an equal opportunities with men. So women's football is actually bigger than men's football in America. So they'll support you really well financially. As you mentioned, it's not quite as easy to become a professional footballer in the UK. Do you think that's reflected in our education system? So they don't necessarily see becoming a footballer as a career? Yeah, I think maybe in the UK because girls' football isn't on the curriculum for PE in schools. So there's not that many girls who play football in the UK as there is elsewhere so I feel that they probably they stick to the more sports such as netball and hockey for girls so they don't really support you that much to go forward as a girls footballer. Percentage wise people who want to become professional sports men and women is relatively low in comparison to other career paths that you might pick. When you are at the stage in school where you have to pick various GCSEs, A-levels, university choices, how does the education leaders react when you say, well, actually, I want to become a professional footballer? I think if they know that you're serious about it, they will be flexible around your goals. So, for example, on a Thursday afternoon in sick form, people choose whether to do um, like work experience or junior achievement, but they will fit in. So some people go off and do training. People go like cycling or to the gym or something like that. And they will fit that in with you. And then they do understand if you have other commitments to the sport. So they'd understand, say, if you were like late, um, if you had like an early morning session. But they will also support you. So they do like after school classes and things like that to make sure that you are on top of your work. Outside of school, what are various other family members, members of the public? What are their reactions when you say, oh, well, I want to be a footballer? I think most of them are quite surprised because it's not it's not a common goal, especially for a girl. It's not common for girls wanting to go off and play football. But a lot of them are very supportive, especially my family. They, they support me the whole way. When I grow up I will be brave enough to fight the creatures That you have to fight beneath the bed Each night to be a grown-up Should 
children be weighed at school on an annual basis. While some experts think so, saying it should be part of the so-called war on obesity. Campaigners from the National Obesity Forum are complaining that while cars in the UK receive an annual MOT and animals in the zoo are weighed, the health of children goes unchecked, allowing obesity rates to spiral. According to statistics, one in ten children aged four to five is obese, and this increases to one in five by the end of primary school. So are annual weigh-ins the answer? Text us your thoughts, one double six, one double seven, or email womensday at manxradio.com. But before we attempt to answer that question, we asked the Department of Education and Children and then the Department of Health and Social Care to tell us what is already happening here on the island. Here's Alex Bell with their response. During a child's first year in school, the school nursing service undertakes a health assessment consisting of a health questionnaire completed by parents. This helps inform the school nurse about the child's health and enables the child to be included in all routine health screenings at school, such as hearing and distance vision checks. At this time, the school nurse also undertakes measurement of height and weight. This is, in part, to monitor growth patterns of children across the island, and it allows the school nurse to offer advice and support to parents and their children about maintaining a healthy growth pattern. Concerns regarding growth in primary and secondary school children are also followed up by school nurses. If necessary, onward referral can be made to a GP or paediatrician. The school nursing service is made up of a team of health professionals committed to promoting the health of school-aged children from 4 to 18 years and the wider school community. School nurses are registered nurses who have had experience and training in public and child health. So that's what's happening here on the island at the moment. But Joe, what do you think? Should this be increased to annual weight checks at schools? You know how passionate I am about nutritional issues. Um, I just want to go back to something there that it says one in 10 children aged four to five are obese. What is obese? in this day and age because from doing a previous job where I was helping people to lose weight um, a classification of, of obese the numbers was ridiculous you know and that's what upsets me the most about this is what are they actually classifying children from age four to five as obese um, you know what I don't sit anywhere on this really if I'm going to be absolutely honest yes I do agree we need to do something more about it But I think within schools, we need to be talking to children more about um, doing more sport. I don't think they do enough. I really don't, especially as they get older in secondary schools. And I think maybe within um, PE lessons and sport tuition, they could be given guidance about healthy matters and nutritional information to help them, you know, maybe not go off and have a burger after they've done sport. But, you know, something that is a better choice. But just going back, what is obese? I'm with you. I think we've spoken to the, on this programme before about um, BMI, the body mass in, index, and that's something I really struggle with because it doesn't take into consideration so many other things like your uh, your your kind of natural body shape. If you're quite broad, that's quite different to being tall and, and thin. But I do also really struggle with the idea of yearly weigh-ins. I'm not actually convinced it's the role of the school to be looking at this. I think a school is a place for education. So educate, educate children about health, food, exercise, and then allow them to put it into practice. Don't preach, teach. Yeah, uh-huh. thank you. you. I quite like you <laughs> with it with your little puns today, don't you? Don't preach, teach. Um, yeah, exactly. I think we should be looking about educating. Do you know what? I do think that it's a very, 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 very dicey subject when you're going to come into secondary schools and you're going to weigh teenagers. You know, I, as you know, have a teenage daughter. I've got nearly a teenage son. 
I can't imagine anything worse than them having to get onto scales. Scales is something we use, but it's not necessarily that we should go guided by. Maybe we should be thinking about a clothes size more these days. Uh, it terrifies me. It's all very well also having the right training, um, but I think it's down to the person that is then teaching because actually the person that's teaching they could be a big they could be obese themselves. But then also so I think the problem is we we we're saying that obese is something that's so awful and terrible when we talk about it like this. And I just go back to my point, and I know I bang on about this, but there are so many more important things. And and I think if we just concentrate so much purely on weight, we're forgetting all those other parts, like happiness. No, OK, I'm coming in on this one. This is where you're wrong, because <laughs> right. um, weight does have a huge... We have a huge problem now um, nationwide, you know, worldwide with weight, because it puts so much stress under a body, and it is known that it's causing the NHS huge problems. But, but then we know. also have a huge obsession obsession with weight that has a damaging effect as well when you're talking about things like eating disorders body image the pressure and you you mentioned your teenage daughter thinking back to myself as a teenage girl the pressure you feel at that age anyway to look a certain way to be a certain body shape I think if you start weighing people in a kind of public thing I'm not suggesting they do it kind of in the corridors but you know in a public environment in the school then you're just surely going back to that point that is it's is causing issues itself. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I don't think that weighing at secondary or primary schools is the way forward. I think, as you say, preach, <laughs> teach, whatever you said. Um, I think that, you know, we should be looking at giving the guidance. We should be um, teaching the children about healthy living because then in turn, it is going to help with, um, obviously, in future issues with being overweight, you know, rather than focusing on numbers just as a healthy guidance hypothetically speaking how would you feel as a parent if you got a letter home from school saying your child is obese um yeah i would want to know what they suggest that we go forward and do about it then i think that's the way i would go about it um i would like to know you know what i just want to know what the numbers of people what they think they are obese i mean i've tried to weigh my kids for various things to do with not just actually because i want them to get on the scales but because they've had to because of maybe um going skiing and sizing and all sorts of things and i've really dreaded actually asking my teenage daughter to get on the scales it just didn't feel comfortable doing it at all do you know what thinking about this subject i remembered something i haven't remembered in a really long time and it was when i was at primary school and i must have only been six or seven and my friend told me that she weighed weighed five stone and i didn't and you know i wasn't morbidly obese but I, i certainly was bigger than her and i remember that that moment for the first time thinking about my weight and thinking that I must be fat at six or seven years old and I just think if you keep reinstating that using numbers like you say these children are already vulnerable to this sort of pressure and we're not helping it by getting involved. Rosemary where do you sit on this? Mm, I don't like labels Uh, I certainly don't like the label obese I think that could be very damaging to a child Um, I think we ought to understand that we all come in different sizes, different packages, different shapes, different metabolisms. um, And being healthy is the critical point. Uh, It's not to do with body size. Uh, I've also known over the years of teaching, you see a child at a certain age and they look cheerfully, let's say, chubby as children or really should look. With some puppy and, fat, maybe. Yes, and you know what? Straight after that, 
they go into one of those growth spurts and they're suddenly six inches taller um, and looking fabulous. And, and I really, really don't think we should label kids or make them upset. That is such a good point because when they actually do these weigh-ins, you could be catching them just before they're about to mm. grow and that mm. could be really damaging, mm. couldn't it? Yeah. Well, we've had a lot of comments on this. Joe, do you want to start us off? Yeah, Bonzo says, I remember in the land before time, we were all given the once over every six months or so by the school nurse as infants, measuring height, weight and checking all sorts. Um, oh, I remember the knit nurse. Can't see the problem with it, except the government actually funding it, obviously, and Roger goes on simply to shout out at me and say no, this could lead to eating disorders. We've had a couple more comments. One on the text says, when I was at primary school in the 60s, we got checked and weighed by the school nurse. All the kids back then were skinny and healthy. Fat kids didn't exist. They also say guidance to do with nutrition shouldn't be the responsibility of the school, but the parents. But looking at all the fat parents these days, what chance do the kids have? And Jackie on Facebook also says, and giving children a complex about their weight is what it would lead to. She goes on to say, our, ch- our oldest child failed the reception weigh-in and I got a call about how she was too short for her weight. They had ignored the fact she was skinny all over but had inherited her father's broad back and shoulders. They had not a clue she had been under the dietitian for allergies for five years. So when they started spouting off dietary advice, it was rubbish. Yes, childhood obesity needs to be tackled where it exists, but it's not going to be achieved ticking boxes and putting data into a computer. It needs careful human intervention. The pressures on young girls is already great without adding to the pressure of passing the annual weigh-in. Last year, a swing band came fourth in Britain's Got Talent, and you might think that would be the last we'd hear of them. But Jack Pack are back... Yep, with a brand new self-titled album. The four members gave up their jobs and careers for the TV show and to pursue their dreams. So here is what happened when Joe Pack met Jack Pack and asked where they got their name from. It was a mix of, obviously, our idols, the Rat Pack, and then a kind of British with the Union Jack and Jack Pack so it's just a combination of the two great question Joe yeah. we don't get asked that much but Joe it's a very Pack, good question we actually question. find out later that uh, the Rap Pack changed their name to Jack Pack when we were, they were doing the uh, JFK presidential um, presidential campaign, campaign. Mm. yeah so ah. we, they were briefly called Jack Pack so who is your Rat Pack hero? Well, um, well, I suppose the, the reason I started to get into it was from my dad. And um, he was very much into Sinatra, Matt Monroe, Andy Williams. So, yeah, I love all those uh, people. Also Ella Fitzgerald and, 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 pe- and Nina Simone and people like that. I, uh, I love uh, Sinatra, obviously, for the voice. But I would say slightly uh, off-centre, not necessarily part of the Rat Pack, but Bobby Darren is just like the ultimate. He's just the ultimate performer. And every if you listen to any of his <laughs> albums... Every song could be live. It's just there's so much life in it, and I, I just think that's a real talent. Um, and, yeah. and you don't really get many tracks like that. How important is your image to you? Because you guys do always kind of wear suits. Do you now see yourselves as being very smooth, very cool, <laughs> very sexy? We love it actually. To be honest, like I, I probably didn't obsess as much. I mean, as a kid, I would always I like to wear a suit and smart stuff. But I suppose we, we do have to look our best quite often so we've all got quite into it it's hard because Sean goes to the shop and buys a suit straight away and he comes in we have no choice like, oh god we're stuck now what do we get and where are we yeah. going to go now but um, don't yeah. have a choice he, we he love jumps Justin. right in but it's we're, lovely we have we have a nice selection of suits we've got our day wear we've got our normal gig wear and then we've got a couple of special 
bat yeah. suits. I hate to think how big your wardrobes are. Oh, do you know what? My girlfriend Bulging. the other day turned around and said, right, yeah. I said, we're going suit shopping tomorrow because we've got a couple of TV performances coming up. She goes, right, so am I losing the one quarter of wardrobe space I had <laughs> or where is it you're putting these other suits? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is crazy. How are does we... she feel? And <laughs> the clearly, other girlfriends. Clearly, clearly not, not, not very good. Yeah. Yeah. What about all the attention that you're getting from the girls? Um, it's hard, okay? <laughs> okay? We have to deal with it. Yeah. Well, we've... Um, all of our partners have been very, very supportive and uh, they've been with us throughout. So it is what it is. And, and we do get lots of attention. But do you know what? We get attention. And we've, we're so fortunate. Our our supporters and our fans on Twitter and Facebook, they range from being, you know, some of them are quite young in their teens, all the way up to being, you yeah. know, nans and grands, even great nans. Uh, so we've, we've got a really, really broad spectrum and of ages. And it's not just girls. Yeah, no, no, the fellas, absolutely. The fellas no, are tweeting us going, oh, I wanted to be up on stage with you guys tonight singing yeah. this again. Yeah. So much fun and a bit of crack. Let's go for a beer. Yeah, so it's great. Darling, there's nothing more I want from you. Just give me that look like you used to do. You don't have to. And Martin, you've been in Game of Thrones, The Clandestine, The Fall. What do you prefer, singing oh, God, or acting? Oh, yeah, but how, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> he, to can't be act, he can't act, so. To, to be honest, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to do a bit of both. I'll play a good tree. Um, but no, yeah, I've, I've, done, I've done a bit. Sean's done a bit of acting and stuff as well, and, and maybe on down the line, who knows? We'll see uh, We'll see how it goes, if the two can be married, but at the minute, it's all about the music. You don't have to say that you love me well, if it ain't true, you don't have to say that you love me. It's cool. I mean, you've recorded Say You Love Me, which is a beautiful track, may I just oh, say, with a 72-piece orchestra. Yes. You know, what was that like? Do you have to pinch yourself sometimes? Oh, uh, big time. Yeah. Big time. It's, um, you know, to, to, to be in the room, you can't really describe the feeling when you're when you're there first of all watching them do their bits and you know doing the strings and the percussion and such and then actually singing with them and stuff you really feel like you have to step up your game because these musicians are the best in the business they'll probably do it in one take they, they might do it at three just to just to make sure they've got it but the, the caliber there was quite something there's nothing like hearing a 40-piece string section playing the most beautiful instrumentals that you've ever heard and the four of us just stood in the room in awe Totally you know, goosebump moments, right? Yeah, and we, I mean, we, we spent three months in the dark, you know, uh, making sure that our harmonies were up to scratch, that our vocals were perfect, because we knew yeah. that these guys were consummate professionals, that they could sight-read anything, that they would yeah. probably do it in one or two takes. They've recorded with Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Elvis, and we're so privileged to have these musicians on yeah. our album. And we knew we had, we had to get it to that standard, which is, which is amazing that the record company and us were all in the same headspace. Pushing we, for you. Yeah, we had to do it right, because these are big songs, you know, to... To to um to try and copy a song like my way or do our own version of it is quite something. So we think we've done something a bit different with the four part harmony, which will hopefully make it sit uh, alongside it. Because the album called simply Jack Pack. Mm. Yeah, um, making it easy. Just making it easy for <laughs> you. Took a long time. You just couldn't think of another name, could you? It features much love classics like, as you say, Light My Fire, I Put a Spell on You, which yeah, I love, yeah. which is obviously from a little film that might have watched this year. And yeah, uh, right, My Way. Um, do you prefer singing your own material or doing covers? Wow. Um, well, the, the feeling of going and doing a, a song like My Way is incredible. You know, Mac the Knife is... It, it, the reaction from people 
<clears throat> from people is is always amazing. Like story of my life is is a, a whole new twist. It was it it's a song that really sits on its own within the album because it's such a current song mm. and such a well known and well written pop song. Um, so seeing people's reactions when we're performing them is amazing. But yeah, do, doing our own songs like going and doing forever and uh, and just just knowing that people are hearing it for the first yeah, time yeah, and, and, and hearing song. such wonderful <laughs> feedback is, it, is something. It's, it's really special. It's funny, going from that One Direction cover, Story of My Life, to doing The Likes of Forever, it's they're t- two very different songs in regards to the sentiment behind them. And they see people's faces when you start singing Forever. It's mm. lovely because you can actually tell the emotion has changed completely. And they see that reaction kind of literally as you're watching on, as you're singing, is... is a privilege, I suppose, yeah. in a way that we've one got Randy Newman writing on our record for us, and two that we're we're able to kind of share it with our audiences. Yeah. When will we see you on the Isle of Man? Ah, oh. when we're invited, I'd love to go. Yeah, there. amazing. Go. Is that an invite? Oh, you are so invited. <laughs> what, for tea? Are we coming around for tea and cake? More than welcome. What's the fish and chips like. You can, oh, they're the best. They're the best, yeah, and we've got exactly. great Manx love cuisine. Love well, do you know what? We have uh, we have a tour pencil in for next year. Um, we can't reveal where we're going or what we're doing yet, but if people stay in touch on our socials, Twitter, yep. Facebook, etc., we will be revealing all very shortly. Okay, go on then. Do do a line from a song. Go on, okay, Martin. Sean does a great version of Night and Day. Oh yeah, Sean, do your this is day. this is incredible. It's go up on. there with the best. Night and day, you are the one, only you, beneath the moon or under the sun. Oh, what a lovely little serenade she got there, and what a little flirt she is. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com, for your next flight away. But our guest today has been involved with numerous charities over the years, setting up the Manx Organic Network just over a decade ago, helping to organise the Southern Befrienders Initiative, and more recently, Port Erin Men in Sheds and... And the hub. She's Janet Bridal, and to give her her current title, she's the project coordinator for the Southern Community Initiatives. Janet, thank you ever so much for joining us this afternoon. No, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to be honest with you, Janet. You have done and still do so much that it is actually hard to know where to start with you. <laughs> really? <laughs> thank you, Kate. Thank you. But uh, well, let's talk, I suppose, about how you got into the third sector because you did a law degree. Yes. So I'm assuming at one point or another you, you were looking to go into the legal profession. Yeah, I wanted to be a barrister. I'd watched Crown Court, which is something you girls will never remember, but it was this really badly acted lunchtime series about barristers in the Crown Court. And um, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a barrister. So I did a law degree. But... I, no, it wasn't for me. What was it about law that you, you went off? Um, I wasn't really clever enough to be like a top lawyer. So, you know, I, was, I would have been not a bad conveyancer probably and not a bad sort of wills and testament. And I was in a large provincial practice with quite crusty people. And I remember sitting there one Christmas and I just looked around and thought, I don't want to be one of these crusty people. And... But yeah, so I left. And how did you end up working in the music business? Um, well, I was working in a window blind shop in North Watford, and um, this recording studio needed a blind, and the chap liked the way I dealt with him on the phone, which I thought was very dodgy at the time. And he said, oh, come and have a chat. I work in a recording studio, and I thought, ooh. And um, so 
I wanted to be in, I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know. So I went along and it was great. And I did that for five or six years. What exactly were you doing? I was, it sounds a bit dodgy, but I was buying and selling secondhand recording equipment worldwide. So, I mean, you've got this equipment in here, you know. Equipment goes in fads, certainly in the 80s and 90s. And you might have a recording studio, and I'm going to name drop now, you know, like Abbey Road Studio. And they might have a some Valve Neve mixing desk in their recording studio. And, you know, maybe the Rolling Stones comes in and says, no, no, we don't like Neve, we want SSL. So they'd phone me up and say, got to get rid of this Neve, you know, but there'd be a recording studio in Toronto that would love a Neve from Abbey Road. So that's what I did. Did you ever get to meet the Rolling Stones? No, but I did meet Madness. Oh, not too bad. Yeah, they were nice. And the Thompson twins. Yeah. Michelle? I've not met any of these yet. Well, do you know, I mean, do you know who the Thompson yet? twins are? No. Okay. They I'm sound good, good though. <laughs> they were. <laughs> well, you did. You got married. You had three children. Yes. Was this the point when it first crossed your mind that maybe the third sector was where you wanted to be? Um, no, it never crossed my mind at all. All it was is I had two young children under the age of three, and I wasn't very good at the mums and tots things because. My babies didn't sleep through the night and I wasn't very good at the nappy potty training business and and I often felt quite inadequate in these in this arena and I was getting quite frustrated and a friend of mine said, well, why don't you volunteer for something? And I thought, oh God, can you just imagine? But then the Citizens Advice Bureau came to my attention because um, actually I think I needed to ask them a question and I thought I could do this because of my law background and um, so I applied, and they are, fan- they are a fantastic organisation. And you're doing Absolutely that in fantastic. Bedfordshire? Doing that in um, Leighton Bussard in Bedfordshire, yes. So what brought you to the Isle of Man in 1999? Well, um, it was the husband's job, the ex-husband's job. Um, it brought us over, and um, I was heavily pregnant with my third child and didn't really think about it very deeply. I just trudled along. And, um, yeah, been here for 16 years. You obviously liked it enough to stay then. Um, I'll be really honest. To begin with, I found it very tricky. It was hard to get to know people. It was very... I felt very southern. It felt very northern. I'd never really been that far north, this far north. It has got right under my skin now. Definitely. But I think that's very much to do with the things that I've become involved with on the island. Do you think that has helped you getting involved with different organisations and setting things up? Does it help you settle in and, and oh, meet definitely. people? And... Yes, yeah, because, you know, it, it's an island and it's hard to break in to islands. It really is. It's hard enough to break into your local village or town, but I, we all know, it's, it's no secret, islands are can be tricky, I think, to break into. And I think being involved in your community is essential to forget it to feel belonging and that's what we all want to do we want to belong somewhere i think well in 2004 it was when you set up your first project here and that was the manx organic network yes. can you tell us what that was all about well i had already sort of been delving into the organic arena before i left because um it, it was one of those eureka moments that i think some people have i was two children i was cooking sunday lunch i was probably having a gin, and I was reading the paper at the same time, and there was this tiny article, 
And it was it was when the BSE crisis was really quite at its peak and we were all terrified about getting CJD. And this article said, in such a matter-of-factly scary way, that as a matter of course, the sucked-off remnants of carcasses were used in school meals and baby foods. And I, I was just gobsmacked by that. How could anybody allow that kind of rubbish food into the most vulnerable people's meals, our children's meals? And... I think it was that moment that I thought, if I'm the only one that can really safeguard my children's, what they eat, what I eat. And at the same time, um, a friend of mine's brother was a doctor and he said, oh, only eat organic meat because they don't have BSE in organic meat. So I started investigating it and really it's just simple. It's simple. You're still very much organic then? Very much so, yes. How does that affect your everyday life? I mean, when you go to the supermarket or when you're cooking your meals? Yeah, it's a bit dull, actually, because (laughs) my poor children are so bored with the food I cook because it is quite restricted. And I suppose... You know, I'm an. In, I, I get enthusiastic about things. You know, and I, and I and I know a lot about organic. I I sucked up that information because it's so interesting. It's so interested me. So, you know, when I look at a bag of vegetables, I know that that's been sprayed and pumped full of this, that, and the other. You look at a cheap chicken, and I know what it goes on in that chicken hut, even though it might say free range on the side. And so, yeah, it's. I do tend to stick to the same types of foods all the time. How do you feel about those of us who who don't make a conscious effort to only eat organic? I despise you. No, no. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a learning curve. You can't you can't take a horse to water. You know, you've people have got to understand it for themselves, and, and it is about being educated. It is about being educated in that arena and being interested, and. I was always a bit romantically nature-orientated as a child, you know. I used to wander around at springtime looking at the leaves, thinking how lovely the leaves are, I know, from quite a young age. So I think I I was always going to be interested in this type of thing, in this the natural world. So the Manx Organic Network itself, who was involved in that? What did you achieve? Right, well, when I first arrived on the island, I was keen to find organic, and I was very disappointed that there wasn't any organic. And I remember going to see a butcher, and, and very quietly, because I was so conscious of this southern accent that I had, saying, I, I say, do you have any organic meat? And he looked at me, you know, and said, oh, it's all organic, love. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've, I've found an organic haven, and I didn't even know it. But it wasn't, of course. And um, But I'd met a farmer called Andrew Moore, who sadly is deceased now and in just outside Castletown um, Paul Vash Balladour Farm and he was organic and he had always been organic and he was a meat and vegetable producer and he and I became firm friends and he invited me to a talk that um, at Nokalo where there was a chap from Scotland who was talking about organic and everything. And I realised in in this meeting that actually there were quite a number of organic farmers on the island, but none of their produce got to market in its organic state because there was nothing in place to support what they were doing. And I suppose it was from that. And it was Liz Charter from DEFA. She organised that talk because I think she picked up on that early on. And um, really, it was just a few of us got together from then. And Andrew was a 
Andrew Moore was a big part of it. The Curfys, Ferrick and James Curfy, um, quite a few people. And we just got together and thought, right, let's do something about this. It is now, though, on the, the back burner. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I suppose what happened is that, you know, we had the big credit crunch and people were looking at the price of things and organic food is more expensive you know not always that it has to be you know I think some people see it as a chance to you know put the price up but so it it went through a slump we all went through a slump and um and then Andrew sadly died and he was he was such an inspiration and such a, a a jolly good farmer, you know, and his produce was great for the Green Man market and his meat was sold brilliantly from Radcliffe's in Castletown. And then one of the another farmer sort of had a bit of a problem with the Soil Association. They let him down, rather. Um, it's It's hard work being certified. And I think what happened is it just gradually... It lost its momentum. And, and to be honest, I lost some momentum as well. You know, you get burnout... You you know you've got to have a good anyway it, yeah. Would Shame. you like to see it back up and running? I'd love it. It would be fantastic. It would. So many people have said to me over the years, "Wouldn't it be great if the island now was organic?" You know, I mean, it was a comment that everybody would say at some point or another. And of course, that's that would be amazing and paradise and unbelievable. But it would be great if there were some more producers. You know, and if there were, then I would get it all going again because I think there is a real appetite for organic on the island I, I mean you have a real to walk appetite in, for organic I like what you did there good, isn't she? <laughs> you only have to walk into Tesco's Tesco's is full of organic produce why and it's got more organic produce than any other Tesco's I think in the UK This is Women's Day on Manx Radio with me, Kate Holland, Joe Pack, and our guest this afternoon is Director of Culture Vannin, Dr. Brisha Madrill. Brisha, do I need to keep saying doctor? Are you no, okay if I really it? don't. Just call me Brisha. How do you normally introduce yourself? I'm just Brisha. Brisha, don't don't worry about the doctor. No, no. Is it because you're scared? Because this would be my genuine worry what? that I'd be on transport and someone would say, "Is there a doctor on board?" No, I used to, when I got my doctorate, somebody gave me a badge. Trust me, I'm a doctor. It's my favourite badge. That's amazing. Um, no. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty, can you just tell us a little bit about what Culture Vannin is all about? We're really, really good organisation. We're part of government, we're a charity and we're tasked with promoting Manx culture, so the culture of the Isle of Man and its people. And at the moment we have various development strands, so we would be doing a lot of um, development for the Manx language, for Manx music and dance, but we're also documenting the changing face of the island through oral history recordings and through making films, making educational resources for the schools. We publish books and CDs and DVDs and we do a lot on social media at the moment. We also give out grants to a wide range of people. So it's culture and cultural heritage. 
and we've got a huge remit. The people who really cared about culture and wanted to set this up really made that very broad, which is great. So we can support things to do with biodiversity, to do with transport heritage, so different railway stations may get grants. It might be to support a book of poetry that somebody's written in English that's all connected to the island. And sometimes we jointly fund things with um, organisations like the Isle of Man Arts Council. So we work closely with them and we work closely with Manx National Heritage as well so that we have a coordinated but complementary approach to Manx culture and heritage. Have you practised that soundbite? No, I just made it up. (laughs) So what is it then? I suppose... When we say Manx culture or, or Manx heritage, we all kind of seem to think of something else and think we know what we're talking about. So what does Manx culture or Manx heritage mean to you? Well, it's really, really wide-ranging, and you picked up on a really interesting point. It can mean something different to different people. So everybody will access culture in different ways. So it may be something that you've done in your village or the town where you're living and it may be some things that just always happen and they're part of the fabric of being in Kirk Michael they'll have some dialect plays that will go on and that might be part of their culture maybe what people are doing in schools it's a way of connecting with everything that people in the Isle of Man have done for a long time and are doing now How do you balance that, the kind of historical roots of heritage and the fact that the Isle of Man has changed for, for good or for bad, a lot over the last few years. How do you balance those two kind of cultures? Well, any culture has that tension between things that are from the past and things that are from now and things that you're hoping to have in the future. And if you can manage to keep those things all sort of hanging together, you've got something that can be a vibrant culture. Culture always changes. It doesn't stay the same. But that doesn't mean that we can't practice traditions that do stay loosely the same or we think they do. Actually, they're evolving as well. Um, and we're telling people about Manx history, we're telling them about culture, we're encouraging people to produce new things. So we might commission people to write new pieces of music um, or to put on a new play based on maybe Ilium Doan or whoever. So there are lots of different things. It has to be relevant to today and it has to be relevant to you. And so people will apply for grants for things that we may not even think about. And that's what's great about our work is it can have a really wide reach and it can serve the community because it can respond to them and to their needs. And they are very diverse. So it may be somebody researching something, it may be something putting on some sort of community event, producing something, having an idea. And that's what the Isle of Man should be about as well. We have got great creativity here. We've got really interesting culture that means that people from outside notice us they notice us internationally on the web when we go to different events around the world and when they come here um, on holiday and they want it to be somewhere different they don't want to go to an anywhere place they want to come to a somewhere place and so our culture makes it that we've had a lovely text in from rob who says manx culture means to me a place unique with oldest ongoing parliament in the world the accent the language the skeet the people who care just feeling safe and comfortable on the island i love and it's it's lovely lovely. but sometimes it's so kind of impossible to almost pick exactly what all those feelings are but i think we all know what he means it can be really personal and that's the thing and it isn't just one thing and not another which is why we try to hit lots of different activities so we did a project quite a few years ago which echoes some work that an artist did keen quail about collecting three legs tattoos so photographing them because that's part of our culture because how you choose to represent how you belong to this place is part of your culture
Well, we are talking about the the advancement of Manx culture when we talk about culture fanon, and you touched on it there. How much of your work is about kind of showing off the island internationally and not just making sure that our culture stays alive here? It's a balance of both because you've got to do it here and we do a lot with the schools because it's really important. Um, we were talking earlier with, with Joe, and if you get introduced to things at school... You can just have that base knowledge of it and that can sit there so that when you're an adult and a visitor comes here, you might be able to tell them what Peel Castle is or what something <laughs> else is. Picking up on a point that somebody asked me what Peel Castle and Fenella is and I struggled with the whole story about it and the whole history of it. So I quickly Googled it, didn't I? I had a look on Wikipedia and was able to talk about it. But yeah. I'm getting the impression it's uh, <clears throat> Brisha's fault that when I am off the island and someone says something about the Isle of Man, I want to correct them. I want every point to be correct i want to talk about manx history and i want everyone to know about it well it's quite interesting stuff there's lots of things that happened here there's lots of things that happened here first and we can be quite pioneering as a nation pioneering in terms of women's votes and also votes for 16 year olds really and there's a lot of modern things or things that have happened in the last few years that we are also an important part of our culture and our heritage going forward and we should take more opportunities like that sometimes to lead rather than always following We've just heard that the Isle of Man Arts Council, which you sat on yourself for eight years, Mm -hmm. is launching a new website, iomarts.com, and they say it's going to draw together all that's happening locally while promoting the island's cultural wealth to that wider audience. From your point of view now on Culture Vannin... How much involvement have you had on this? And what were your initial thoughts? Oh, it's a really exciting time for Isle of Man Arts Council. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved as a volunteer for eight years, sitting on a board, making difficult decisions about giving out money because you've only got a limited pot and you have got hundreds of applications and they're all great. And you're thinking, which one can have the money, which can have part of the money, and trying to balance that. And their focus is very definitely on the arts in general, so it isn't just connected to Manx culture. Um, but they do support Manx culture as well. And to have a really good website, which then has lists of the different people who are involved in the arts, useful links, different articles, features on certain artists, telling you how you can apply for grants, having all the forms, all the guidelines there, making it really easy is great. And I know it's something that the Arts Council has wanted to do for a long time. And... It's just fantastic to see it come to fruition. How well do the organisations like the Isle of Man Arts Council and Culture Vannon work together? Because it often seems like you're all pushing and pulling in the same direction about, you know, Max culture and Max heritage and the brilliant creative people we have here. But yet doing it under different umbrellas. Well, we all, I think, work well together. And something that's been developing recently is the creative industries, and that's been led by Mike Reaney in the Department of Economic Development. So he's tasked with developing film and the creative industries. So we're looking at creative people, and they may be architects, they may be writers, they may be musicians, whatever. There's a huge range of people, graphic designers. Um, and to see that that contributes greatly to the economy and to the well-being and the quality of life of people on the island. So we all work together we work with Manx National Heritage, Isle of Man Arts Council, DED, the Isle of Man College, to have um, a work group that looks at that. So it's the idea that we can all come together and together we can try to move things on across government because government isn't always about separate organisations thinking we must find the answer because sometimes the answer is found cross-government um, and we're 
sort of out on a, a wing in one way because we're a government charity, we're not civil servants, but we're government workers. Um, but we can contribute a lot to developing um, strategy and ideas and looking for economic drivers as well as cultural ones. I'm going to go back to you being quite a creative person now, because <laughs> as we have been hearing throughout the show, you're incredibly musical and involved with many projects, many musical groups. So I just wondered what's next for you in terms of your music and your performing. I don't know, I've just come back from Lorient in Brittany this summer where I was looking to sing and play as well as do a, and doing a lot of the organisation. That was the less fun bit, <laughs> but the very necessary bit. Um, and... It was really good because it reawakens your sort of your passion for it. There have been times in my life when I've spent like three or four nights a week going to different practices, band practices. So there's social occasions as well at people's houses and then performing. And then that scales back for a bit. You produce CDs, you may go to festivals and then it calms down again. And then you have to get that spark again. So I'm really looking forward to writing some new songs again. I work with a band called Moot and we've been sort of dormant for a few years. But we really didn't want, just like we've been talking about, we don't want Manx culture just to be something that is old or old-fashioned in inverted commas because it isn't. It's relevant to today, so we used to mix in computer samples, different generated music, getting environmental samples as well um, from sort of peeling around that area and then mixing it together, writing new songs in Manx and in English and, and that's something that's really good fun
thanks as always to all our guests and to you for listening. And don't forget you can always listen to the programme live every weekday from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.